1: we have what we would call unlearned response to things like sweet, that we just naturally like those. We really don't need much learning to like sweet taste. And that from an evolutionary perspective makes sense that breast milk is sweet, so it would be protective for us to be immediately attracted to that, because that, that's gonna support our, our health and survival as little babies. But these studies also show that we have an unlearned aversion to bitter and to a certain extent, sour taste. And again, this makes sense because because in the wild, we don't have our nice grocery stores, but rather we're foraging in nature. These bitter tasting foods in nature are probably poisonous and things with sour may be rancid or rotten. So we wanna be a little more careful around those foods. And we also have a natural preference for savory as well. And that corresponds to breast milk as well because it has high levels of uh, savory amino acids in it. So we have a natural, natural liking for that.
0: Well, hello, welcome back. I'm excited to have Allison Ventura back on the podcast today to talk about taste preferences and preference development in babies. So Allison is a PhD researcher. She works and teaches at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in California. And at the end of our last interview, she was on back in episode 310, talking about responsive bottle feeding. Allison just like casually mentioned that she used to work at the acclaimed Monell Chemical Census Center, and she was studying preference development in babies. And I was like, whoa, Like this is fascinating to me. Because I don't know if you guys have heard of like some of these studies where researchers will give, for example, pregnant moms a set amount of carrot juice to drink, and then they measure how the fetus responds. And I've always been like, wait a minute, how do you actually measure that? Spoiler alert. Apparently, they count the gulps of amniotic fluid that the baby takes after the mom drinks or eats one type of food compared to another. Like, like this is the legit science behind preference development. And then The other studies I've always been interested in are the ones where researchers will give babies tastes of something. So something sweet and something sour. And then these like legit trained experts, people who study facial expression in babies, then measure the baby's reaction. Allison's going to share some more about the biological reasons that humans and babies are naturally drawn to sweet foods or why they turn their noses up and make a face at bitter foods. And heads up. Another spoiler alert, this is not your license to like only ever feed your babies fruit because they love it and not bitter vegetables because they pretend to not like it at first. Quite the contrary. Allison is going to teach us about repeated exposure studies, talk a little bit about variety studies, and then just kind of this bigger idea of how really pushing your baby's palate can help you raise an independent eater. So, with no further ado, here is Allison Ventura talking about taste preference in babies and when and how taste preferences develop.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. All
0: right, last time you were here, we were talking about responsive bottle feeding, and we were chatting after that interview, and you dropped that you had previously worked at the Monell Center on the topic of flavor preferences, which I've been dying to cover. So I'm excited to learn more about this area of your work and your background. But before we get started, could you explain what the Monell Center is and what type of work they do?
1: Sure. So the Monell Center is located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they are a taste and smell research institute. So They have some of the most foremost scientists in the fields of taste and smell, and they're interested in understanding how these senses relate to our behaviors and health. So uh, it was a great place to kind of learn more about this area of research and really understand how it applies to early
0: childhood. And what sort of projects did you work on when you were there?
1: So I worked with Julie Manella, who is one of the um, premier scientists in the world of flavor learning and early preference development. And so we did research with babies looking at how preferences and eating behaviors develop during early infancy. So we would bring moms and babies into the lab and observe them feeding and in different uh, contexts and try to understand how both what the babies were being fed as well as how they were being fed influenced the baby's outcomes.
0: And I know you mentioned like Monel is a taste and smell research institute. And I think sometimes we, you know, we talk about learning how to eat being this full sensory experience for babies. And a lot of times in baby led weaning, that's in the context of parents being stressed about the baby getting messy. And we say, you know, it's important for your baby to touch the food and smoosh it and, and have that full like tactile experience. But the smell part is so important. And I'm not a sensory expert, but smell precedes taste. Is that correct? And could you share more about like how smell and taste are actually related?
1: Yeah, so it, it depends on what you're talking about. So taste is really what's happening with your tongue, that we have receptors on our tongue that detect the the basic taste, which are sweet, salty, savory, sour, and bitter. Then you can think about flavor, which is really the combination of taste and smell. And so that's what your olfactory um, nerve or the uh, what's in, going on in your nose is bringing to the the experience. So when you have a combination of taste with all the odors that are in the food, that's what produces this idea of flavor, which would be like the flavor of a strawberry, which is a combination of the sweet taste of the, the sugars in the strawberry with the olfactory components or the the smell that the the strawberry is giving you.
0: And I wanted to ask you, Allison, about this idea that a baby's flavor preferences are shaped by the mother's diet even before birth. I mean, most of our audience who's listening has already had at least one baby. But for context, I get a lot of questions about seasoning baby's foods and parents mistakenly thinking babies need to eat bland food. And I usually respond that, you know, your baby's already been exposed to flavor compounds first during pregnancy through the amniotic fluid. And I'm just curious, like, how do scientists actually know that?
1: It's kind of crazy how they know that. They have a lot of really interesting ways of getting at this. And this type of research has been going on for a long time. So some ways that they know this are through looking at premature babies and looking at how they respond to different flavors or or tastes that they're given. And they've been able to make a guess from that of, oh, if, if a baby who was born at 36 weeks gestation is reacting in this way then you know, that that might be something that they're also reacting to in the womb. There have been some studies looking at if things are injected into the womb, and these are like old studies. We don't really do these types of studies anymore, but they can see if, if there's a sweet su- substance that's injected into the womb that they can use measures of the mom's waist. Or more recently, we have ultrasound techniques that we can look at to see if the baby then starts to swallow more amniotic fluid versus decreased swallowing. I just read a a study that was published just last year where they use 4D ultrasound and they actually had moms take a capsule that either had carrot powder in it or kale powder in it. And they found that about half an hour after the mom ingested the capsule, when they then did the ultrasound, they could see that the fetus was displaying negative faces when the mom ingested the kale capsule and positive, like happy faces when the mom ingested the carrot capsule. So those suggest to us that that those tastes, those flavors, are getting into the amniotic and and the fetus is noticing and reacting. And is
0: that that like the kale versus carrot stuff? Is that you know the bitter taste of a dark green leafy vegetable like kale compared to carrots, which tend to have a sweeter taste because of their higher carbohydrate slash sugar account content? You got
1: it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then we also have studies that look like immediately after birth at what happens if we give a newborn baby different uh, tastes and this technique has been used to get at maybe some of these innate responses that we have to different tastes. And these studies suggest that we have an innate or what we would call unlearned response to things like sweet, that we just naturally like those. We really don't need much learning to like sweet tastes. And that, you know from an evolutionary perspective, makes sense that Breast milk is sweet, so it would be protective for us to be immediately attracted to that that, because that's going to support our our health and survival as little babies. But these studies also show that we have an unlearned aversion to bitter and to a certain extent, sour taste. And again, this makes sense because in the wild, if um, we don't have our nice grocery stores, but rather we're foraging in nature, uh, these bitter tasting foods in nature are probably poisonous. And things with sour maybe rancid or rotten, so we want to be a little more careful around those foods. And we also have a natural preference for savory as well, and that corresponds to breast milk as well, because it has high levels of uh, savory amino acids in it. So, so we have a natural natural liking for that. So we also know that what a mom eats during pregnancy influences her the, the fetus and eventual um, baby through studies that look at mom's diet during pregnancy and then look at what the baby likes later on and so we have some studies that just observe this you know they ask moms during pregnancy what are you eating and then when the baby's maybe six months of age they see what the the baby likes but there are also uh, experimental studies which is really the best evidence we have for this where the scientists would give the moms maybe carrot juice uh, over the course of their pregnancy so they have a group that get carrot juice and the group were asked not to eat carrots, and then when their babies are six months of age, they're actually able to give their babies carrots versus maybe plain cereal and see how they react. And those studies show us that those moms who have this repeated exposure to carrot juice during their pregnancy have babies who show a much greater preference for carrots when they're six months old. So that tells. But, okay, us that, what do you think about on? that? They're though, like, to
0: like it. I was looking at the same study, and I was like, for real, like how much does a six-month-old like or not like something? Like, some of that is so subjective. I'm like, and we often tell parents, like, just because your baby makes a face, like, I love that you're talking about, like, in utero, we're measuring babies making negative faces to kale. And, like, honestly, parents will be like, then I'm not feeding my baby kale because inherently, instinctively, they don't like it and I don't want to do something damaging to my baby. And I'm like, the takeaway message here is, like, just because your baby makes a face doesn't mean that it's quote-unquote poisonous and we should not be offering bitter vegetables. But, like, with the carrot juice thing, it's like, Like, how can you really tell if they quote unquote like it or don't like it? Like, is that very strong data?
1: Well, it's the challenge of studying babies, right? They can't just tell you what they like. So you have to observe them. So I would say it's the best data that we have because we have unbiased observers. It's not that just we're asking the moms, did your baby like that or not? We do ask those questions because they're interesting. But we have people who are trained at measuring emotional responses. And there are actually pretty good Behave like facial indicators of how someone is is feeling and responding to someone, something, and so so we have observers who rate the baby's faces, and and they're blinded to whether or not you know that baby that baby's mom had carrot juice or or not, and and able to really get at you know are there more negative faces versus positive faces being made, and they also measure how much the baby eats too as a measure of liking, and see that babies eat more when they when they have this more familiar food. So you're right that that only tells us so much. And it is, I think, important for parents to take their baby's faces with a grain of salt, as you're saying, because those reactions can change over time. We know that babies are really ready to learn. So just cause they maybe don't show you a super positive face the first time they have something, that doesn't mean that they won't learn to like it over time.
0: And what about breastfeeding? Like what type of flavor compounds transfer via breast milk? We kind of talked about in pregnancy, the transfers via amniotic fluid, but I would assume the same principles hold true through breast milk. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. So it is a similar mechanism that what the mom eats is transferred through the breast milk to the baby. So for example, if mom has a garlicky pasta for dinner, Then probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, the breast milk will have a garlicky flavor to it. So it's really, again, these odor compounds and foods that are being transferred. And it's thought to really be this nice bridge. So we have this prenatal learning that's going on where the fetus is being repeatedly exposed to the flavors of the mom's diet. And that's really prepping the the fetus for the world to say, okay, these are the the foods you're going to experience. You better start to like them because you're going to need to. And then breastfeeding continues on that learning by continuing to uh, transmit what the mom's eating to the baby so the baby can continue to learn and
0: develop those preferences. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Allison, I know you've published on the topic, I was like researching all the stuff you've done in the past, free amino acid content in infant formulas, and- I recently did some advanced training on um, pediatric food allergies and for dieticians and pediatric dietitians, And we were talking so much about all the different types of formulas and like, you know, tasting them too. And just acknowledging that like some of these to our adult palates are, are pretty nasty. So like if a baby for health reasons has to be on an amino acid formula or hydrolyzer, or partially hydrolyzed formula for different sorts of health reasons, is there any data to show that that would have differing effects on baby's taste preferences later in life?
1: There is. And these formulas are interesting because they do have a very strong flavor profile and it's due in part to all those free amino acids that, you know, these broken down proteins, those amino acids carry a lot of different tastes and flavors. And we actually see that before four months of age, babies don't react very strongly to those flavors. So we don't know what exactly is going on there, but there's, there's something that is maybe still developing in their you know, taste and, and smell experience where they just don't react very strongly to them. It's after four months that we see babies show real distaste, more like maybe how we would react to those formulas. So that's maybe one lesson is if you have to introduce those formulas, hopefully you can do it early on before your baby kind of crosses that threshold into reacting strongly to those. But the bottom line is when it comes to learning from what we're eating, babies are really just little sponges, like what, like they are with everything, right? So they're going to learn from whatever they're eating, whether it's breast milk or formula, and they're going to learn to prefer what's familiar. So the benefit with breast milk is that it's a really varied experience that every day could be changing based on what the mom is eating. So the baby's getting the opportunity to learn, oh, this is broccoli. And we eat a lot of the broccoli in my house. And this is this is apple and this is carrots. And they, they get to be exposed to all those different things, which really supports you know, expanding their, their preferences for all those great foods. Uh, with formula, it's a more monotonous experience. They're gonna be having the same flavor profile every day unless their parents are changing formulas frequently. So that means that, that you don't get as rich of a learning experience in terms of variety, but that baby's still gonna to learn to like that formula. And so then these protein hydrolysate formulas, they do have this stronger profile that in some ways is more similar to like the flavor profiles of broccoli or these um, dark green leafy vegetables. So there is some data showing that babies who um, are on these protein hydrolysate formulas show a stronger preference for foods like broccoli later on because they're similar to the flavor of the formula that they've had.
0: That is so interesting. I never heard that. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You guys, if you, a lot of our parents feel, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. My baby has to be on this formula, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Like, hey, maybe they'll end up liking broccoli as a result of it. This is just something I also thought of. We recently had some questions on this, like how, you know, with COVID you can lose your sense of taste. And then a lot of babies have had COVID. Is there been any data about like the impact of that or do babies regain their sense of taste more quickly? Cause I can, you know, imagine having experienced that myself, like it's not that pleasurable to eat if food doesn't taste like anything. And that's certainly not what we want babies experiencing. Do you have any ideas or thoughts there?
1: I don't. I don't know if there's been any research on that. So it's an interesting question. I mean, my only guess would be that you might have quicker recovery because we know that babies are more what we would call plastic, right? They learn very quickly and are really uh, moldable. So it may be that some early experience like that they might be able to bounce back quicker. But I guess it might also depend on how long that loss was that they might miss out on an important window of learning if they had impaired taste or smell for a long period of time.
0: Okay, let's say mom had like a very typical standard American diet, sad, during pregnancy, breastfeeding. Is there anything she can do once the baby starts solid foods to help expand that baby's acceptance of certain foods or flavors or tastes?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it all kind of breaks down to the same mechanism. So what we've talked about already is illustrates that repeated exposure is one of the primary ways we learn to like things, meaning that if we experience something over and over and over again, we babies, they learn to like it. Um, it's just becoming familiar to it is a really important aspect of preference development early on. So we saw that prenatally that repeated exposure to a certain flavor, promoted preferences for it. We saw it during breastfeeding and we see that during solid food feeding as well. So once uh, a baby is starting to eat different solid foods, you're making sure that you're giving that broccoli 10 to 12 times, giving your baby repeated exposure to it so that they can learn to like it is one of the most potent tools that we have. And some research has shown that works even better than like adding sugar or butter to to the food, that just giving it over and over again, if if you can be patient and persist, is, is a great way to to get kids to like new foods.
0: And I think our audience is really familiar with that statement, like the whole, you know, make sure you try the foods 10, 12, 15, depending upon what resource you're looking at, you know, different times before you like or accept it. And it's actually, we've had Jill Rapley, the you know original baby led weaning philosopher, co-author of the original baby led weaning book, just to kind of ask her idea on this point. And she made an interesting point that like, While she likes the idea of exposure and parents learning about that and becoming familiar with it, because like, you don't just do broccoli once, your baby makes a face and you're like, oh my gosh, they hate it and we're never eating it again. She said that she does feel sometimes that that messaging kind of gets misconstrued, does do many things, parenting, infant feeding space to be like, well, it's my job to make my baby like the food. And so I just want to reiterate there that we're talking about exposures as like practice opportunities and giving your baby the opportunity to explore this new food, the ultimate goal isn't to like make them eat X number of grams of broccoli every day. So they get this many you know, milligrams of vitamin C. And I just want to make that distinction so that parents don't feel like, oh my gosh, this is so much extra work.
1: Oh yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And and it can be a hard thing to maybe throw out broccoli 10 times before you get, you know, your baby to eat the before your baby eats it on the 11th. So there definitely, you know, needs to be, I think, some consideration of how to make it work for your family, right? And how to make sure that, yeah, it's not a prescriptive thing of you need to eat this many bites as many times, but rather, are there ways that you can give your baby an opportunity to explore this food multiple times? Don't give up on it. Keep trying and the preferences will come.
0: I love it. Don't give up on it. So there's you know, another kind of great area of debate in infant feeding, this idea of the flavor window, right? A theoretical period of time when babies will like or accept a wide variety of foods and flavors, tastes and textures. And we see it in action every day in the baby led weaning space with babies willing to try new foods that you know toddlers wouldn't touch. So of course, a lot of this is developmental and the difference between infancy and toddlerhood. But what are your thoughts on the flavor window when it opens, closes, if it even exists? Thoughts on flavor window?
1: It appears that there are Maybe certain times when these repeated exposures and you know experiences with certain foods may be more linked to preferences and learning and there's some data suggesting like the first month or two that when babies are exposed to flavors through mom's milk that that might be especially predictive of of later preferences for those flavors so that would suggest that you know during uh, the early period after your baby's born making sure you're eating you know lots of fruits and vegetables while breastfeeding and then definitely during the transition to solids that's a really important time for learning as well and as you mentioned it is a time when babies may be more receptive to trying new foods we might see them expressing more positive faces in response to new foods and so that can be a really i think important time for both parent and baby to to learn about this new feeding context and and new foods. And there is pretty good evidence as well that the the later phase where it gets more difficult that you mentioned uh, is a thing that once children reach 18 months to two years, then they may become more what we call neophobic or kind of unwilling to try new foods and, and a little more selective in their eating. And it's really corresponds with their increasing independence, right? So I always like to say that it's actually a good thing that they're becoming more careful, right? Because as they're venturing away from you more, maybe, or or walking around more, just becoming more independent, they should be a little more careful with what they experience and, and it makes sense. And so I think that the more that we can get parents to relax during that period and know that it's a phase, it might last until your kid's about six, maybe longer, but as long as you can just relax and let them work through that phase and not change your strategy, you know, start to get controlling or encourage them to eat a certain number of bites or everything on their plate. Just knowing that is a phase can hopefully be helpful for, you know, keeping on with the good practices you've instilled up until that point.
0: And I like that idea, you know, you're always trying to flip it and make it positive, right? Think of all the foods that your baby can eat. Think of this next phase as, like you said, it's actually beneficial because it's a somewhat protective mechanism that they're becoming a little bit more, I would say, resistant to certain foods. I wanted to ask you about just the use of the term, you know, food neophobia, because with toddlers, like, again, I teach a hundred first foods program where the babies try a hundred different foods before they turn one, and then parents will come back in the second year of life. So after they turn one, be like, my kid won't eat liver and kale and sardines anymore, Katie, but they were like smashing it a few months ago. And that term neophobia, it's like, they're not scared of new foods. They're resistant to trying foods that they previously liked. Is there another term besides neophobia that gets used or could be used to describe foods you used to like, but now don't?
1: I think selective eating would be maybe they become more selective and in, in what they're willing to eat during that phase. Uh, you know, pickiness is a distinct, you, you might hear pickiness, but it, that is kind of a distinct um, concept as well. But I guess that's another way to put it. Is, yeah.
0: And we try not to use that word. We don't want to identify the child by their eating behavior. However, that's the word that resonates with parents and it's kind of a bad. good segue into the next question. Cause a lot of our parents and caregivers readily will admit, listen, I'm interested in baby led weaning because I myself am a picky eater, or I have an older child who maybe the mom is calling that kid a picky eater. And I want to avoid that with this baby. So for families who maybe want to be more adventurous eaters or raise babies who eat a wider range of foods than maybe themselves or their older siblings, do the same kind of rules apply? You know, variety, keep it up, stick with it, don't give up? Or do you have any additional thoughts for those families?
1: They do, but I think we should emphasize the importance of social learning too. So we, we want to make sure that it's not just, well, I don't eat well, but I want my baby to eat well and that we're offering all these, you know, wonderful foods to our babies, but then not eating them ourselves. So I know that might be hard if the adults or the other kids in the household already have maybe set habits with their eating or or they feel like they're picky, but there is a lot of learning that goes on through modeling and, you know, watching those around you. And so I think that those who maybe have that approach would want to try to also incorporate approaches where they're also eating the foods that they're offering to their babies so that their baby can learn by watching them. And some of the research on, you know, repeated exposure has shown that when, you know, the moms go through this experiment where they're asked to drink, you know, carrot juice every day uh, for a period of time, that their preference for that carrot juice increases as well. So that might offer some promise to these families that over time, you know, even though it may be difficult at first to expand the foods that they're eating um, and serving to their family, that over time it might help everybody, you know. Yeah, we hear that from families all the time. Yep, Yep.
0: Especially with whole grains, a lot of families in our program will be like, Katie, okay, I never would have tried spelt or sorghum or camut or quinoa. Like sometimes it's an exposure thing, but like, okay, I learned how to make it. I learned that it's, a wow, there's actually a fair amount of iron in there. Oh, it actually does taste good. There's another, you know, just giving other options for our parents so they don't get stuck in the pasta, potatoes, and rice rut when it comes to offering carbohydrate foods. And they'll be like, yeah, I actually expanded my palate as well, which is another thing I like about the baby-led weaning model is that it does oftentimes help families expand the foods that they're eating as well. I wanted to go back and ask you about the studies ultrasound 4D where they're determining you know, it's an experimental study where you would give mom X amount of carrot juice. How do they measure how much amniotic fluid the baby is swallowing? Or is it like counting the gulps? Like, how does that actually get measured?
1: Yeah, I believe it's counting that they would look at how many swallows the baby does. I don't know. I don't think they'd actually actually be able to measure volume.
0: So Allison, what about this idea of associative conditioning, like the notion that pairing flavors together in a certain way can help increase acceptance?
1: So this is another way that familiarity helps us learn to like new things. So it's what we see during what we talked about with the prenatal learning and learning during breastfeeding, that the anaclutid has a flavor that's familiar to the fetus. The breast milk is a flavor that's very familiar to the fetus. And so then when we bring in novel flavors like our our carrot or garlic, just because that new flavor is paired with a familiar flavor, the baby's going to automatically learn to like that quicker, to like that more, because it's it's paired with something that they know that they like that's safe. So that's kind of one of these early learning mechanisms that we see. But it's also something that we can use as a strategy later on, that if we have a, a new food that we want to introduce to our baby and have them learn to like, we can pair it with a food that we know that they already like. So an example would be putting breast milk in the cereal that you have your baby eat. Or if you know that they like carrots, maybe mixing that into a a new food. uh, And just the pairing of those foods will help them
0: like the new food. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back.
2: From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top-trending weather-related story of the day every day of the week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes. Stories that will impact you, such as how a particular hurricane may affect your area. Or will that impending snow event bring more than just a winter wonderland? Occasionally, there are weather-related stories from the lighter side like how a recent storm trapped tourists inside Agatha Christie's house, a setup perfect for a plot of one of her novels. And if there's a spectacular meteor shower or eclipse coming your way, we'll let you know if the sky in your area will be clear to check out the celestial display. You see, AccuWeather Daily is more than just weather. It's AccuWeather. Listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And another important distinction, it's pairing, it's not masking or hiding. And I think, you know, we <laughs> routinely hear parents like, I'm hiding this taste in this other thing that they really not like. And we're like, "That that's not the goal here is to make, trick your child to, to eating kale. That's not what you're saying. But I think a lot of parents think, oh, that's what you have to do to get babies to like it. And you're saying that, no, it's just kind of sometimes the vehicle that can maybe open them to trying it a little bit more. We're not trying to, quote unquote, hide those flavors.
1: Exactly. Because if you hide the flavors and there is that whole movement of, you know, hiding vegetables and-
0: Yes, it will not die. Whatever. It's been around for and, so long and it's <laughs> making a comeback. And and, and I, I know you're a mom too. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, there are so many parents who- are like, oh, I just thought that's how you get kids to eat vegetables. And my issue is like you're teaching the child that there's some, something inherently bad about this new food and thus it must be, you know, hidden. I don't love it from like a theoretical standpoint, but from like a scientific standpoint, I don't think it's that helpful.
1: Right. I mean, I guess if if you want to do it to maybe increase, I don't know, to, to change what you're eating. Okay. But I agree that it's, it's not serving the purpose of getting your kid to like those new foods that you really would want the flavor of the the new food to be predominant in what they're eating, so that they're actually experiencing and and learning about it. So it is very different from this idea of, of hiding vegetables and food, but it's rather pairing you know this this new food with something they already like, having them experience both of those flavors, and and that we know that that will really accelerate their acceptance of that new flavor.
0: And I think when we talk about comparing, especially like pouches with baby led weaning foods, you know, parents, are, you know, what are the drawbacks of pouches? There are, there are many from a developmental nutrition standpoint. A lot of times they're just apple or pear purees that are masking very, very small quantities of the food you think the baby's eating. So, oh, this is a kale pouch. No, it's not. It's basically green colored applesauce. And on top of that, your child's not learning to see the, they can't see the food in a pouch. They can't smell it. They can't feel it. It's very far removed from the food that it originally was. So coming back to this whole notion of like, the sensory experience of learning how to eat when we make modified versions of foods that the rest of the family is eating that they can see and touch and smell and taste, even if they don't quote unquote love it the first time, my argument is that that's a much more developmentally appropriate way to learn how to eat than to to squeeze some packaged or processed food out of a plastic container into the baby's mouth when they don't get to experience that. So what about the idea of variety exposure? Like we talked about repeated exposure but how can parents work to increase the variety of foods instead of just doing like broccoli over and over and over again?
1: Yeah, so this is maybe promising, you know, research as well that can be helpful for families to know is that there, there is a lot of research showing that repeated exposure, as we talked about, is, is one of the best ways that, that we learn to, to like new foods. But there's also research showing this idea of variety exposure can be beneficial as well. Whereas this means that we're not just giving broccoli every day, but maybe we're alternating between broccoli and cauliflower and kale. So there are these foods that are similar in in their characteristics, but also different foods. And if we have this variety exposure, this is associated with increased preferences for um, both those foods as well as other similar foods too. So I guess the bottom line is if we're offering our children a wide variety of foods, and kind of making that a consistent practice and an expectation that, you know, these are the different foods that we have at our table that that can help them learn to like those foods and accept them.
0: Allison, where can our audience go to learn more about your work and read some of this research on taste and flavor?
1: So the website for our lab has links to our current research as well as information from our previous research, and that's healthykids.calpoly.edu. And you can also visit my website, which is allisonkventura.com where I have links to all of our studies that we've done and a couple papers on this particular topic uh, where your listeners can
0: learn more. And I'll put that in the show notes for this episode and also link some of those in the description where you guys are listening to this episode. But thank you so much, Alison. This was so informative and interesting. I really appreciate you talking about taste preferences in babies. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Alison Ventura, currently at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, formerly of the Monell Chemical Census Center. I, for one, am just like fascinated to see, you know, how these different studies get designed. And you guys know, like some study design is better than others, but then just the application of some of this research, like what's the takeaway message for me as a parent? And hopefully you guys are walking away being like, okay, I can't just feed my baby fruit because they freaking love it. Like I need to get some of the bitter vegetables in there and we need the iron from the different plant and animal foods. And they need to have those allergenic foods And, you know, learning how to eat is this full sensory experience and that taste and smell do have so much to do with it. And I know Allison mentioned bitter vegetables quite a lot in this interview. And sometimes parents are like, oh, the bitter vegetables are like the hardest one to figure out how to feed, because maybe you yourself don't particularly love them or cook them a lot. But if you go back and listen to episode 155, I covered bitter vegetables and how to safely offer bitter vegetables for baby led weaning. So I'll put that link as well as all of the other resources that Allison mentioned, that'll all be in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash three one six. And a special thanks to our partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the podcasts from Airwave Media. Check us out online at blwpodcast.com. And thank you so much for listening.